to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. This is the show that brings you a psychological perspective on common and current life issues. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Hello, folks. I'm Suzanne Phillips. Thanks for joining me again on Psych Up Live. In an earlier show on Psych Up Live, Law professor Sarah Rogerson discussed the legal ramifications of the immigration crisis. Today, Dr. Hawthorne Smith, licensed psychologist and clinical director of the Bellevue NYU Program for Survivors of Torture for over 15 years, discusses the psychological impact of zero tolerance, asylum seeking, and policy changes on immigrants today. The message of this show is not simply support for open borders, but rather a recognition that when we talk about immigration, it brings with it fear, contention, concern, and compassion. What we'd like to do is look closer at the asylum seekers. Who are these people? What drives them to come? What do they feel? What do they fear? Can we evaluate them Can we help them? Dr. Hawthorne Smith is a licensed psychologist and clinical director of the Bellevue Program for Survivors of Torture. He's also an assistant clinical professor at the NYU School of Medicine, Department of Psychiatry. He received his doctorate in counseling psych from Columbia University, as well as an advanced certificate in African studies from a university in Dhaka, Senegal. He also holds an MS in International Affairs from the Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs. Dr. Smith speaks extensively at professional conferences and seminars, providing clinical services for survivors of sociopolitical violence. He also works to help all of us providers in terms of enhancing our cross-cultural clinical Smiths. He's been the recipient of many, many awards, such as the Robin Hood Foundation's Hero Award. Dr. Hawthorne Smith, It is my privilege to welcome you today to Psych Up Live. Well, thank you so very much, Suzanne. It's my great honor to be here with you. So let's give our listeners some understanding of your perspective. Tell us a little bit about the Bellevue Survivors of Torture Program, which brings you so up close and personal to asylum seekers. Well, I'd be happy to do that, and thank you. And I, I think that the, uh, the CV I sent you that you have of me is a little bit old, so I've actually moved from clinical director to program director um, of this program, which has now been in existence since 1995. I um, personally come from a background of um, both international affairs, foreign service, and human rights psychology, so I came to Bellevue to do my clinical internship in 1995, the same year that this program was, um, was founded. And I said, this is an incredible um, sort of marriage of these dual passions of human rights and um, international affairs. And I came on as an intern, and they haven't been able to get rid of me since I've been here, <laughs> and I've seen the program grow. And in a nutshell, we are very much a, a program of resilience and strength-based interdisciplinary program where we are working with survivors of, um, of purposeful, violent torture and human rights abuses. Um, we choose the word survivor um, 
purposely as opposed to victim. We really feel that anybody can be a victim, the wrong place, the wrong time, the wrong circumstances, but to be a survivor really speaks to a way of people engaging with the world of really refusing to relinquish their humanity despite the violent and purposeful attempts to destroy their humanity. And as I mentioned, we're interdisciplinary. So within our program, you will have psychologists, um, psychiatrists, um, primary care physicians, nurse practitioners, various medical specialties, social workers, social service providers, and legal service and educational providers. We really try to look at a sense of the, the holistic sense of a person and the many different ways that they can be in impacted by human rights abuses, but also the many ways that we can intervene and help to bring them on the road towards rebuilding their lives. So, and if I can call you Hawk, which I know is your nickname, Absolutely. in this culture now, we have in some ways less immigrants coming in, but we have many more apprehensions and detentions, and we have them coming often as family units. Uh, unaccompanied children, given the fear, given the amount of detention time, how do people find your program and what has the the current situation really, um, how has it impacted people who were victims of, of violence and who feel they need asylum? Well, let me take that in, 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 in sort of two strokes here. In terms of how people find our program, um, it really is a sort of broad array of referral sources. We work um, with people within the immigration system, um, whether that be immigration judges or asylum officers. We help to train them in terms of sensitive interviewing skills, multicultural um, you know, um, proficiencies and, and all of that to open their eyes. And there are times where we are actually referred clients from officials within the immigration system who see somebody at the asylum hearing um, or you know, their asylum interview and the people decompensate, fall apart. They're like, you know what? I know there's a program where you can get help. We um, often get referrals from immigration attorneys who are working with traumatized, um, you know, people, forced migrant survivors of torture. They will refer here. But the majority of referrals come from members of the expatriate communities, um, others who have potentially received services here or know of the services, and maybe they have um, seen somebody who has recently come to the country who is sleeping poorly, screaming out in the middle of the night because of nightmares, or we've had clients who have noticed people on the subways off to themselves or crying or in some sort of distress and have led people here. So it's really been word of mouth in the community, and um, really the numbers have increased over time such that you know, as of a year and a half ago, we had a wait list to get into our program that was stretching beyond months and actually almost got to the point of being a year-long wait list to come mm. to our services. So there, um, there's a great need. And, you know, even just before I talk about some of the ways this is impacting on folks, because that is a broad topic, I just wanted to address a little bit of who these people are um, that are coming to us. And, you know, with our, our program, we, as I mentioned, we've been in existence since 1995, and um, we have now treated over 5,000 men, women, and children from over 100 different countries. So every continent, every sub-region, I mean, part of the gallows humor over here is that if we're reading about it in the New York Times today, probably within uh, two months, uh, two and a half months, we will start seeing people from that particular conflict zone making it to New York and, and to our hospital. Um, 
But, you know, in terms of who these people are, oftentimes when I'm doing a training, I will ask the people in the room, I'll start just asking questions. People raise their hands. You know, have you ever voted in an election? Have you, um, do you belong to a recognized religious group? Do you not belong to a recognized religious group? Um, have you ever written a letter to the editor, which immediately outs me as being an older person? And then they say, have you ever responded <laughs> to a blog post or put something online? Um, you know, have... Do you identify as a woman? Um, do you have or are you close to somebody who has a sexual orientation other than heterosexual? And I ask all these questions and finally I say, look, you're probably wondering why I'm asking all these intrusive, borderline, inappropriate questions. But it's just to say that if you raised your hand to any one of those questions I just asked, I can honestly say that the people we're working with are people just like you. Um, you know, we're not working with some exotic other when we talk about torture survivors or forced migrants. Mm. Um, we are talking about people, um, mental health professionals, medical professionals who have been persecuted because they provided services to people on both sides of a conflict line, people who do not worship the way the government um, deems to be correct, people who love differently than the way the society um, deems to be correct, people who um, advocate for human rights, etc. Many of the things that I know that you do and that I do, and sometimes you're sitting in, um, in a session with a client and you're sort of looking like, wow, you know, these... We could switch seats, you know, if not by happenstance, right. what's going on politically, what have you. So just to underscore that when we talk about these torture survivors, um, that we really are not, again, talking about some exotic other population. It's about shared humanity. And, mm. um, and what is going on now is, is frightening. Um, and, you know, we, we did a study... Um, back in 2003, it was a study um, we, we, we did with the uh, Physicians for Human Rights, and um, it was called From Persecution to Prison, and we were looking at the health consequences of detention for asylum seekers. And, you know, this seems like it was back in the quote-unquote good old days, you know, just after, um, you know, since almost you know, 15 or, you know, 16, 17 years ago. Right. But, what we found then is that the mental health consequences of detention were, um, were significant in terms of making symptoms of depression worse, um, keeping post-traumatic reactions alive or exacerbated or what have you, um, along with you know, a lot of other social and legal um, impediments that these, these people were facing. And that was before the current crisis um, mm. that we're seeing at the border. But what I'd like to emphasize, and particularly from our point of view here in New York, is that you know we see the images of what's happening at the border and these forcible family uh, separations, etc. But I don't want us to lose track of the unseen family separations. Um, and this is a lot of what we're dealing with here, is that many people who came to this country through all the, uh, quote-unquote, the right ports of entry, et cetera, and have engaged in the asylum process, um, things have slowed down remarkably. A part of that is just resources and what is happening at the border. But there's also been a, a large shift in policy. It's something that goes by the acronym of um, FIFO and LIFO. Um, FIFO standing for first in, first out and LIFO standing for last in, first out. And by way of explanation, it just means that, let's say, for example, Suzanne, you came to this country to seek asylum, and you um, applied three years ago. And I come today, and I'm applying for asylum. One would think that your case will be treated 
well before my case. And that's how it was for many, many years. And that's what we call first in, first out. You apply first, you get dealt with first. But the current administration has sort of turned that on, on its head, sort of based on a presupposition that perhaps people who are coming in like me have very flimsy cases that we're just trying to get ourselves into a system that is waterlogged, knowing that even if we don't win our case, we can still come here, get employment authorization, be on the books for four or five years. Mm-hmm. So what they've done now is say, we're going to treat the cases of the people who arrive right now. We're going to treat them first. So unfortunately, you've been sitting there for three years waiting for your first asylum interview, but now you're getting put to the back of the line behind me and everyone else that's coming now. This is the last in, first out LIFO that our people are dealing with, and it's having great impact um, sort of at both ends of the spectrum in terms of clients we're dealing with, you know, clients who have been here for four or five years, separated from their families all this time, um, getting increasing pressure and worry from home, like, hey, daddy, hey, mama, what's going on? Did you forget about us? When is your case? You said you were going to go there and reunify the family. Have you found another family? Um, mm. Have you just forgotten about us? And, and the incredible emotional impact that has on folks. Um, you know, um, well, what, mm-hmm. one of the things that seems to even exacerbate that is if we go with first in, last out, mm-hmm. then one of the problems is the folks who are in detention don't have access necessarily to the attorney who would help them with their asylum hearing. So that we don't really have a moving line here. So your folks, not only the folks in detention are in despair, but your folks have to be in despair because the line has stopped moving. The line has stopped moving, except that, you know, for people who have just arrived, the line moves very quickly for some of them and almost too quickly because, Suzanne, as you know, sometimes people who have been horribly traumatized, it takes a while. It might take, you know, exposure therapy. It might take just some very gentle sort of unfolding where they can even get to the point where they can tell their story, where they can tolerate telling their story, where they might not know the importance of, you know, where they need to apply or what to do, or they fall prey to what we call street advice. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're people who prepare um, asylum applications and, and, and notarios and places like that. Some of my French-speaking clients call it les conseils de la rue, you know, meaning, you know, the street advice and everything. And people get misguided. I actually spoke with a woman. We were doing an intake uh, just the other week. And she was saying, you know, I, I have applied for asylum. Someone in my community helped me to do it. But it's not really my story, you know, it, it overlaps with what I did, but they just put in details and just sent it in and I don't know how to do that. So the people for whom the cases move very quickly are often underprepared or unprepared. Right, right. Um, and then those people who have been here for a long time are just sitting in this, this real situation of um, not knowing what comes next, not knowing what to tell their families who are waiting for them back home. And we both, and I think we've spoken earlier at other times, everyone knows that narrating a horrific event isn't something that just unfolds like a tale. So if you are telling it in um, 
shards of memory, someone may not believe you. So I know your program works with that, but if you're on your own without any kind of attorney, there's a good chance, as you're, you're reminding me, people are going to be moving out without really having had a chance. That, that that is very true, you know, and um, you know, the, the trauma memories, traumatic memories, the way they are encoded, <laughs> um, you know, as opposed to quote unquote normal memories and all that, and even having access to that, um, people who are avoidant who might not even tell their entire story because there are aspects of it that are too painful to go near, um, and then you know, a lot of what we're able to do, and we do a lot of work within the um, system, the asylum system, and and you know, working with clients who have been with us. Now there are organizations like. Um, Health Right International, Physicians for Human Rights, who do sort of one-time evaluations of, of, of clients. We work from a different model because we have the opportunity to work with them over the course of time and have a course of treatment or whatever. So we are able to point out patterns. You know, here's someone who came into treatment and was really scattered in terms of, you know, memory and, you know, uh, getting details correct or what have you. But with treatment, we've seen that sort of evolve and the person's beginning to sort of reclaim themselves over time or what have you. That is very important, even just from observational data beyond what the person's story is when they go um, in front of immigration court. So... um, we're able to provide that assistance, but not everyone has that. I mean, right. just in terms of sheer numbers, it's estimated that there might be like 1.2, 1.3 million torture survivors living in the United States. And um, they say that maybe up to 25% of those people are living in the New York metropolitan area. So we're looking at a quarter million people or 300,000 folks. And we have dealt with over 5,000 people since 1995. But you can see wow. we're barely, barely scratching the surface. Hawk, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to proceed with looking at this topic. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're speaking with Dr. Hawthorne Smith. He's a licensed psychologist and clinical director of the Bellevue NYU program of survivors of torture. We're really trying to get a feel for the people under the titles you see in the paper. Who are the asylum seekers? What do they face? What do these programs that Dr. Smith is offering us, what what can they provide for them? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. We all know that today our country is in many ways run by vested interests, which have accumulated large amounts of power for themselves and at our expense. But this can be changed by recognizing the problems and then by adopting libertarian solutions to address them. Tune into All Rise, the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray. Judge Gray and his guests will discuss the problem areas of today and then present solutions that result in a better world for ourselves and and our children. Tune in Fridays at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. 
Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you ever experienced the joy of living? Not just aspects of your life, but the true joy of life itself. Very sure has. You could call him an ambassador of joy. From a successful entrepreneur to becoming a quadriplegic due to a rare disease to his ongoing recovery through swimming and physical rehabilitation, Barry now presents his gifts to others as host of The Joy of Living. All you need to do is tune in. Listen live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're speaking with Dr. Hawthorne Smith, and we're talking about the impact of zero tolerance um, and asylum seekers and the program that Dr. Smith directs at this time is the program for survivors of torture in Bellevue Hospital. So he has a very up-close look and feel for the folks who have come from all over the world seeking refuge of some type. And one of the things I just asked him is, As citizens throughout the United States, we all watch the media and become horrified or enraged, but certainly it has an impact. We talk about vicarious trauma. Well, these are folks who have carried real scars of psychological and physical torture at times. And so my question is, what has this done, Hawk, in terms of turning up the amount of dysregulation and the amount of symptoms of trauma that you've seen in the folks in your program? That's a very important question. Thank you. And I think, you know, the literature always shows that, you know, folks who have um, gone through significant trauma in their lives, um, whether childhood trauma, whatever it might be, are more vulnerable, uh, more susceptible to future traumas and the fact that they can have even more um, painful impact on them. And yes, we're dealing with an extraordinarily um, traumatized population who have come here. And I think that there is also this sort of sense of, my goodness, I fled you know, I was very lucky to have made it out of the country from which I fled, get here to the United States, you know, um, land of the free, home of the brave, and now I'm not even sure if this is a safe place. Right, Where do you right. go next? Where do you turn? So there's that, that sense of helplessness, um, hopelessness, and, you know, one of the things I've learned from our clients is they'll say that, you know, the only thing worse than a lack of information is misinformation. 
and um, the way things get ratcheted up on you know TV and within the media, and you know as you well know with our media situation now, there are very few outlets that are sort of objective. You know, here are journalists. You know, it's sort of more uh, opinionated. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in various political views, um, and so. The, the you know the, the the tension is ratcheted up, and then people hear things. We you know I had a, a, a group session a few months ago where um, rumors went around that you know um, ICE was going around and, and rounding up all the Guineans uh, along 125th Street up in Harlem, um, and people were petrified to even go home or to take the subway home or, you know, mm-hmm. some people missed work for two or three days because they didn't want to come out because they heard these things. And so people are really um, trying to hold on to one another, um, leaning on our program and asking for up-to-date information. And, you know, this is one of the ways in which groups, and I know with your role with the, uh, the American Group Psychotherapy Association, this is very important. Um, it's one of the ways that we've been able to reach out and to help alleviate um, some of these gaps or these additional stressors people are feeling um, because of misinformation or hyped um, rumors or whatever it might be to, you know, work with groups like, you know, Lutheran Refugee Services with the, with the New York City Mayor's Office to get up-to-date information on know your rights, you know, to give people um, these red cards that we have which explain rights which can, can be given to a police officer or an ICE agent, letting them know what to do if somebody knocks on your door at home, you know, to make sure to not open the door, unless, you know, you're able to see, like, what a valid, you know, a valid warrant, and we give them, you know, even slides of what a valid valid warrant should look like, and all, you know, that sort of information, but, you know, beyond just sort of um, programmatic, or, you know, here's what's going on out in the society sort of information, for them to be able to sit down with other folks um, who are navigating the same sort of tense um, environments and, you know, a combination of feelings and to have their feelings normalized, you know, that it's, it's reasonable <laughs> to be, to be fearful. Um, you know, there's, there's shifting sands and it seems like every day we're getting some sort of new policy proclamation. And, you know, oftentimes it's on us to say, well, even if someone in, in the administration says this is what they aspire to, there are checks and balances still. There are the courts. These things are not a snap of the fingers. You know, all of a sudden everything has changed. Um, but we have to remind them of that because many folks are coming from countries where leadership is such that if the uh, head of state snaps his fingers and says this is what it's going to be tomorrow, that's how it works. Um, mm-hmm. So we have to let them know that there are protections, there are due process. But um, I think that part of the way that groups in particular have been really helpful is to help people to tolerate what is essentially an intolerable situation. Um, mm. Last night we had a session where, you know, it was, a, again, a, a group for French-speaking African survivors and just talking about the misery, the hardship, the corruption, and everything that many had experienced in their countries and to flee and out to come here where it is stress, it is anxiety, it is uncertainty. Um, and, and, again, people feeling that they're not alone in this sort of struggle. Uh, I, I give you one example, um, Suzanne, just in terms of like someone who is um, has been in this process for I guess seven or eight years now, and um, there was a, a group session we had, um, and again this is three or four months ago, 
and it just so happened this particular session it was all men who came it was um it was six um african men and all of them had really extended um asylum processes i think the person who was freshest to the scene has already been waiting for three years and the others have been waiting longer and one of the young men was just talking about being a father having left his daughter um when she was a toddler and now she's seven or eight years old and um part of what he does besides working and sending money back and all of that was just to you know he always helps her to plan her birthday and her birthday celebration and send things and we're going to plan this i'm going to send you this in the states and all this wonderful stuff and he was on skype with his daughter and and you know, they finished their birthday planning, and he smiled and said, ah, I'm a good daddy, right? And his daughter, you know, the innocence of babes, just looked into Skype and said, how would I know? I don't know. I mean, you seem really nice, but I don't know you. You know, he's, he's not there to tuck her into bed. He's not there to read her to bedtime story or when she skins her knee and all those other things we kind of take for granted. And he was heartbroken, and he, he brought this story back to group. And all the other men there, and you could just sort of see the tears welling up in everyone's eyes. And one of the things I, I, I try to institute as a, as a group facilitator, I know there's a, there's a phrase in Persian, um, they say, which means, you know, you are my eyes. And it's kind of like how people see one another. So I, so I asked these gentlemen at the table to, to look around at one another. And when they looked at the other five guys at the table, what did they see? You know, did they see people who had just abandoned their families because uh, they wanted to come to New York and see the Broadway shows or, you know, run up and down 8th Avenue or whatever it might right. be? Or are these fathers who are actually making the most painful sacrifice they can to miss significant chunks of time with their family, of their, you know, their children's developmental process in order to help bring them out of you know the, the the fire that they're in and to give them a better future what do you see and these guys were able to say no i see serious men i see good fathers and i said but you know as you look out at those other five people and you see good fathers and you respect them understand that those five people that you respect are also looking at you right. as a good father <clears throat> as someone who is making an ultimate sacrifice and that they, they see you, you know, you're not alone. And it was just one of those things where tears were shed, um, people were hugging before they left, and again, just helping someone to stand up straight. And, well, you know, you one, know of, one of the things that I've, I've heard you do, and it, it was so, I've used it myself, in trying to understand and our listen, trying to invite our listeners to consider the extraordinary grief, the perennial mm-hmm. grief and loss that refugees, asylum seekers deal with. Um, you've always asked an audience, write five things you love in your life right. on a paper and then rip it up. It's gone. That's, right. That's a little tiny glimpse. But one of the things the group, I think it does, and that happened in that beautiful group you just described, is the disenfranchised grief, meaning nobody knows about this man and the loss of the little girl's understanding of him and his daddy, those men were able to hold that and grieve with him and validate who he was. And in some ways, it also offers, I think about refugees now so frightened of him being on the streets, they can't 
Look, they can't allow their authentic self to be seen safely, no matter what state they're in, because this isn't really such a safe place at the moment, unless they find a program like yours and some of the many wonderful programs. But you can be your authentic self in one of your groups, and that is gigantic to healing trauma. It really is. I think, you know, beyond the issues of safety, when we even talk about issues of empowerment, and I think that one of the important factors in in the groups that we run is that people become part and parcel of the healing process for others, which becomes part of their healing process. And we really help them or hope that they will recognize and then internalize the fact that they are not just people who are needy. um, They are people who are needed. You know, and that they, uh, again, they play an integral role in other people being able to resist and stand up. Um, You know, we had a conversation the other day where we even touched on some of the issues um, that, you know, Franz Fanon had been working on years ago. And, you know, and they kind of described the healing process as almost being like a subversive um, action, you know, that they are people who are not supposed to survive this, that people are supposed to be so discouraged that they self-deport or whatever you know, the term is, or they just give up or you know, they, they begin to buy into the fact that you know, they, they are less than, they, they are not worthy, all the things that the human rights abusers would like to really instill in them. And, and folks um, really fight back against this. I mean, a, another, you know, uh, another session that I could probably highlight, there was a, a gentleman from um, Guinea who came to group and announced that you know, he, he was going home. He, he was returning. Um, he had been in the process for about three years, um, no interview date set, and had just had a, a really heart-wrenching conversation with his children the night before who were just like, Daddy, you know, come home. Do you love us? What's going on? And he said, you know what? I'm going home because um, I need to hug my babies, and I, I know that I'll be killed. I'll be talking, but but you know what? Maybe I'll make it for a week. Maybe I'll make it for two weeks before the authorities know I'm back. But I have to hug my babies. And um, people in the group intervened, and I thought were just remarkable ways. There was a gentleman from Congo who then shared his experience, and he had just won his asylum. But he was like, my brother, when I first came here five years ago, in order for me to leave the country, it was it was very. I was living as an internally displaced person. I was undercover, and bribes were paid, this and that, but but there was a short window of time that I was going to be able to get to the airport and get into a plane. So my person helping me said, you know, just be prepared and we're going to call you when it's go time. And he got the call. He needed to be to the airport, but his eldest son wasn't home. He waited as long as he could, but he couldn't wait any longer. He went to the airport. He made it to the United States. And when he got here, first thing he does, he opens his phone, he sees all these text messages from his son. Daddy, how could you leave without saying goodbye to me? And so his first week in the United States was just essentially spent crying and wondering how he can respond to his son. So fast Mm. forward five years, and now he's won asylum. He's being able to begin the processes of reuniting his family, and he shared that story um, with the gentleman from Guinea. But then he went further, and what he said is like, you can no longer conceptualize of your family as the family you left behind you. You have to conceptualize of your family as the family in front of you, the family that you're going through all this pain, um, suffering, uncertainty. Um, You're withstanding all of this because they're in front of you and you're going to reunify them. And 
I mean, to me, it was just brilliant. I mean, not just in a mm. cognitive, strategic way, but just emotionally brilliant. And um, you could see how the gentleman from Guinea was reinforced, and he has not gone home, and he's still here, and he's sitting in this this horrible FIFO, LIFO thing. It's almost been four years now, and he still doesn't have um, an asylum hearing or an asylum you know interview scheduled. Um, but he's fighting the good fight and knows that he's doing this for his kids, not as um, someone who has abandoned his kids. But again, it takes this kind of engagement, this kind of insight, this kind of support, which exists. But again, we're dancing as fast as we can. And I know that there's so many people in our community who don't have access to that kind of support. And those are the ongoing family separations that aren't being caught by the cameras, that perhaps aren't being publicized as much in the media right now. But they're all around us. You never know who's driving your Uber. You never know who's sweeping the floors, um, you know, in the, in the building where you work or live or, you know, who's standing guard outside the 99-cent stores you walk up and down Broadway and what it is they've left behind. And again, mm-hmm. these are people just like us. Well, what, what your example, this precious example reminds me of in that there are those programs throughout the country and they're invaluable, neighborhood link, church programs, just the fact that someone cares enables the kind of hope that your gentleman talked about because hope has to do with the possibility of options in the future. If you could even glimpse the possibility of options in the future, you have a road to hope. And we're really in the hope business when we're dealing with people who are suffering to this degree. And knowing someone cares really is a, is a lifeline of hope very often. Absolutely. Um, I had one client explain to me when he talked about hope, he said, you know, um, the difference between no hope and a little bit of hope is infinite, you know, um, because he said having no hope is not, it's not zero. You don't start at zero. When you have no hope, it's like a black hole underneath you. You know, it, it, it impacts the way you behave, the way you engage, you know, will you, you know, chase down potential um, resources or opportunities or what have you. If you have no hope, you won't, and things get worse. It draws you down. So, um, yeah, he talked about that, and, you know, there's, um, there's a, the way that it's explained, again, I learned so much from my group members, and um, I think this is a story I may have shared with you um, before, but we, we, we had a group session almost 20 years ago now, and there was a gentleman from Mauritania, and he was really struggling, and he asked the question, you know, what are the characteristics, what are the qualities that you need to survive um, in this world, or to, or to change the world, or at least to survive in the world. And um, as a group facilitator, I was like, okay, well, that's such a broad and profound question. They'll never come up with a consensus of that. But I was wrong, as I frequently am. And uh, <laughs> the people at the table that night, there were nine of them, they came up with three things. And they said, um, la sagesse, le courage, et l'espoir, which translated to wisdom, courage, and hope. Wonderful. And they went further. And, and they explained that if you have two of those three qualities, no matter which two, it's insufficient because you can be courageous and hopeful, but if you lack wisdom, you're probably going to go about your activities in a way that's ineffective and you're going to fail. Mm. Conversely, if you're wise and hopeful, but you lack courage, you won't act on, uh, on your ideals. You know, you'll be trapped in this, uh, 
this prison of inertia and you'll never get anything done. But, you know, the, the clients we work with, I mean, the wisdom is there. And I, I'm not talking about just advanced studies or something. I mean, just what our clients call l'education de base, you know, sort of like a moral or cultural, spiritual hold, education that everyone hold, has. Hold on. I, I, love, I love it. We're going to have to come back. We're going to have to take a brief break. But okay, cool. Wisdom, and courage, we'll and hope. Yep, we will come right back. You've been listening to Psych Up Live, and we're here with Dr. Hawthorne Smith, licensed psychologist and the clinical director of the Bellevue NYU Program for Survivors of Torture. We're talking about the inside story of who those folks are who have come here for asylum and how it is that they've been helped. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Hi, folks. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're talking uh, with Dr. Hawthorne Smith who is the program director. Is that correct, Talk? 
That is correct. Mm-hmm. Okay, Program Director for Survivors of Torture. About this. We're talking about the impact of the policies of today, but even more importantly, we're, we're looking at how people help each other in group. And I was just mentioning, because both um, Dr. Smith and I are big in-group and connected with the American Group Psychotherapy Association. So I've come in some certain circumstances. Um, Antonio Vargas is an example. Um, sometimes... One of the things that I imagine your folks in the group are dealing with, it was a little bit like the, the birthday party story, is that to deal or in some way negotiate the pain of loss, some unaccompanied teens never called years past before they ever called back home. Um, or in one case, when the parents were deported, Diana Guerra did not call. She just could not keep talking to them, and they would beg her to come and visit. She was a citizen. She just couldn't go. So I'm wondering, is that the kind of thing that your folks have often tried to make sense of in the group? Because this has to be very painful for people here who are separated from family. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's something that comes up quite frequently. And again, for those people who are caught in a situation where with the changes in immigration policy, what have you, who are sitting there for multiple years without even having a date for an initial interview. And those conversations at home become increasingly problematic. We have had marriages that have dissolved because a spouse back home does not believe um, that the person is trying to reunify the family or go forth Mm -hmm. because the person has no answers or, again, particularly from children who might not understand what is pretty inexplicable (laughs) from from our end. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Mama, Daddy, why why aren't you calling for us? Come home for my birthday. We had a, a gentleman from Cameroon who talked about his daughter who said, Daddy, if you don't come home for my birthday this year, you're no longer my father. Mm. Um, and and so people have gotten to the point where even making those phone calls home um, is so painful that there are some folks who have decided that, you know, it's it's better that I don't call because I can't bear to hear my children cry on the phone. I can't bear having these questions that I can't answer posed to me and I don't know what to say. And one of the, I think, really important things that group members have been able to do, especially because we have people who have been in in our program for multiple years who have gotten their asylum, who have reunified their family, all the way down to people who are just arriving and they share from their experiences. And some of the more experienced, quote unquote, members who have been through the process are able to share with others that actually, you know, even as hard as those conversations are, the guilt, you know, the survivor guilt that it might bring on that, you know, I'm here in New York, they're back home, stuff is going on. They might have all these assumptions about me, but the way of sort of combating that is to be in touch with your family to, you know, to not promise things that you can't, you can't promise that you can't foresee, but just to let them know you are with them. You are struggling. You are doing everything you can. I mean, with clients who come in, oftentimes will ask me, will you help me get asylum? And I say, I can never promise the results, but I can promise the effort, um, you know, Mm -hmm. that we will walk with you. We will guide you. Um, and it's that sort of thing. And, when families are reunited, it's a joyful thing. When a member of group comes and brings 
his or her children, their spouse, and um, they're there at the table and group members are able to welcome them, you know, to give them advice in terms of, you know, what it's like when you first arrive in this country, etc. But oftentimes the question is asked, sometimes even of the, the, the younger children or whatever, what helped you to sustain? What helped you to keep going mm. while mom or dad was here? And basically without, um, you know, exception, the children will say the fact that mom or dad or whoever it was called us and spoke to us even when things were hard. We always knew that he or she was there. Even though we were far, they still cared about us. And um, we knew that that connection was there. So as painful as it is to have those conversations, how important it is, that's not something I can really tell people. But when they hear it from others who have been through it, yes. um, it, it, it's so much more powerful. Mm-hmm. And it's, I guess I want our listeners to know the rate of um, your folks actually getting asylum status is tremendous compared to other situations. Is yeah, that, I think. Yeah. I think having a lawyer is a big thing. I mean, for folks who are um, not represented or what have you, I mean, it's, it's, it's even worse. But I think in general, nationwide, I've heard statistics anywhere from like 20 to the low 20s to like 40% of asylum cases are successfully adjudicated. Um, but for us, if you look at asylum grants or withholding of deportation, we're up at 97, 98% of our clientele. Now, some of that I understand is selection bias, that oftentimes we are referred some of the more highly traumatized, um, you know, individuals or what have you, but I think that part of it is some of the documentation and support that we're able to give in terms of um, the, the judicial process, but also the fact that we're able to support them to help them tolerate what is intolerable and get through this process so that there can finally be a judgment. So, um, yes, there's a, a huge difference in terms of success rate for people in this program as opposed to just sort of on the street. And It's part of why we have a long waiting list. Well, I think what fits in with that is what we've been saying, and that is part of healing is narrating your story and narrating your healing and having the sense of agency of helping others. So when they've had experience in your groups, Hawk, they've really been able to hold on to a sense of agency. You call them experts. I love it. Um, Experts by experience. And in some way, that's what it's going to take to negotiate a culture that could sometimes really have some hatred and xenophobia going. This is not an easy culture. Nope, they came from even more difficult cultures. But... That group experience, they do see each other in the eyes of other people. Yeah, that's right. And I think that, you know, coming again from a very disempowered situation, sometimes the group serves to help empower them. People going into their asylum interview or their asylum hearing and understand, you know, maybe they've never set foot in a courtroom before or anything like that, but understanding, yeah, there might be people in that room who are more powerful than you the judge, the, uh, the attorneys in that situation, but there's no one in that room who was more expert than you in terms of what was going on in your home country, and there was no one in the world who was more expert than you are in terms of your own lived experiences. So even though there are power differentials, you're the expert in the room. You know, Raise your head a little bit and, and realize that you have a voice. And as you mentioned agency, and I know we were talking about hope and being in the business of hope before, and perhaps just to, to, to sort of tie up what, you know, what the, the insight that they showed us, uh, again, with wisdom, 
courage and hope. Um, if you have two of those three, it doesn't work. You know, so if you are wise and hopeful, but you lack the courage, you're not going to move on it. But wisdom and courage, you know, our, our clients have that. But what is hard to hold on to is a sense of hope. And, and what they explained to me, and this goes to your notion of agency, is that hope is not so much something you have. Hope is something you do. It is active. It is a sense of agency. It's a way of leaning into the world. It's a way of um, engaging. It's, it's, an, it's attitudinal. It is, again, an active capacity to hope. And that one of the most important notions of that is that the capacity to hope is something that can be shared. Mm-hmm. then hopefully you know people can use the wisdom and courage they already have and that's that's how I see our groups that's how I see our program as an interdisciplinary program where you know our docs are helping to alleviate some of the physical pain they're getting hooked up with some of the legal services or helping them navigate the shelter system if they don't have you know adequate housing etc cetera, etc cetera. all those different things we can do so people can hope like there is a possibility and then they engage and uh, they 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 utilize that sense of agency and try to move forward to navigate these troubled waters that they're facing. Mm. And, and just in terms of the separation of children that has horrified all of us and and hope, whenever you hear how difficult it is to reunite with parents and children, I, I always want to say to people we know about the magic of connection for healing Children may be set back somewhat, but if they're in with their parents again or loving caregivers, the resilience and the potential for children is really there. We have to get them out of this situation. But as you say, if the parent has hope, that's a tremendous step for any child that is reconnected with them. Absolutely. And, you know, we we look at the literature in terms of direct trauma, children who survive warfare, other traumatic events and all that. And one of the big indicators in terms of how a child will respond is how the parents respond. You know, and if, if the parents are falling apart, that really bodes poorly for the children. The parents are there and seen as, um, you know, s- someone that is stable and there and making that effort to keep the child safe. That, you know, moves a child in a much more positive direction. We, I mean, we just got through, you know, May and June um, of seeing graduations, you know, children who came here um you know, after the parents were able to get asylum, reunify the family and all that, and these children who are flourishing, you know, graduating not only high school, but now going on some of graduating wow. college, people going into law school and all that, and you see that this gener- you know, the, the, the hope is there, it's getting manifested in an, in an intergenerational way, and um, and just, you know, I, I look back, I'm, I'm descended from slaves on both sides of my family, uh, my mom's family in the Caribbean, my dad's family here in the States. I don't know the names of all those people who survived, um, who somehow protected their children so that the next generation could step further and all that. I can go back about three or four generations, but I don't know the names of everyone. And I always sort of share that with some of my clients, like, you know, there might be generations of your family that will come who might not know your name, but what you are doing, standing at the crossroads and, and pulling your family out of the proverbial fire to a place where they can trace their own future and really look more at opportunities as opposed to limitations, security as opposed to danger, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, you're doing an amazing thing across generations and, again, uh, gonna, to empower. We're going to have to stop, but you're doing an amazing thing. I think the Bellevue program, and if people wanted to connect with it, 
they would go to what 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 would be the link? Um, Thank you. Yes. Yeah. So our, our website is www.survivorsoftorture, all one word, dot org, um, and even Facebook, uh, we're there. And um, if you look up the um, you know Bellevue program for survivors of torture, PSOT, we have a, a nice um, page there and everything. And um, we are always looking for help. As I say, we're just scratching the surface. We're dancing as fast as we can, but the people that we're working with are deserving and uh, we're going to keep on doing what we can so they get the resources and the assistance they merit. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Smith. Uh, Hawk, thank you for coming on the show. It's an invaluable show. I'm I'm sure our listeners got a great deal from it. It'll go out now. I want to thank my listeners. Remember, you can hear this and any prior show as a podcast on my host site. Uh, this show at by 6 p.m. Eastern will be a podcast, and you'll be able to access it on Voice America or the variety station of Voice America on your iPhone, on your iTunes, Sketcher, in many places that podcasts are available. Until next week, please take care, thanks, and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, be well and be listening.